a lot of the divided cases these days are, of course, around constitutional issues. There are cases where the, the court still achieves unanimity, or uh, uh, so does the US court too. Um, but there are a lot of divided cases, both on the charter and on federalism issues, uh, and on other issues too. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Today's episode of the podcast is a special encore presentation of one of our best events from the last school year, in which Professor Faisal Baba of Osgoode Hall Law School sat down with Professor Dwight Newman of the University of Saskatchewan's College of Law to discuss what they refer to as the constitutional cleavages emerging at the Supreme Court of Canada. This discussion was originally hosted by the Runnymede Society's Osgoode Hall chapter in February 2023. Thank you so much for coming today. My name is Dylan Gold. For those of you who don't know, I'm the president of the Runnymede Society here at Osgoode. Today's event is called Constitutional Cleavages, and we're delighted to have two very distinguished guests with us. I'm going to start with Osgood's own Professor Faisal Baba. Faisal Baba is an associate professor here at Osgood. He also serves as the faculty director of the Canadian Common Law LLM degree program. He has researched and published in the areas of constitutional law, multiculturalism, law and religion, disability rights, national security, and access to justice. He teaches constitutional law, human rights, legal ethics, and appellate advocacy. Previously, he sat as vice chair of the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. He maintains a varied public and private law practice, appearing before administrative tribunals and boards, and at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. He advises and represents a variety of individuals and public interest organizations in matters pertaining to constitutional law and human rights. He has appeared as an expert witness before Canadian parliamentary committees, and he served as a member of the Equity Advisory Group of the Law Society of Ontario. He has lived and worked in the Middle East and South Africa, and has lectured and taught in many countries. He is currently a senior editor with the International Review of Human Rights. Let's give it up for Professor Faisal Palma. <laughs> professor Dwight Newman is a professor of law and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights in Constitutional and International Law at the University of Saskatchewan. Following law school, he clerked for Chief Justice Lemaire and Justice LaBelle at the Supreme Court of Canada, worked for human rights NGOs in South Africa and Hong Kong, and for Justice Canada in Ottawa. And he completed his graduate studies at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Since joining the University of Saskatchewan in 2005, he has published widely on constitutional law issues, indigenous rights issues, and intersections of these areas with natural resources issues. Along with a hundred articles and book chapters, he has published a dozen books, including two books on the duty to consult and the co-authored Law of the Canadian Constitution, all of which have been widely cited in judicial decisions. He has provided selective legal advice to a variety of clients on constitutional law issues, and he has done consulting work for international investors in Canada's natural resources sector. He pursued additional studies during COVID, and he has recently completed a Master's in Arts of Theological Studies uh, in the History of Christianity, 
and a Master's of Science in Finance and Financial Law. Please welcome Professor Dwight Newman. I feel terribly inadequate now after those introductions. So I also wanted to thank all the other people who made this event possible. That includes all the executives of the Runnymede Society, some of whom are here right now. So let's give them our gratitude for all of their work. And of course, our national director, Chris Kinsinger, who brought this event to us. Really nothing in Runnymede would be possible without his constant hard work and dedication. So thank you to Chris. We are going to squeeze in a Q&A. We're just going to ask that you leave your questions until the end because this event is being recorded. So without further delay, I give you Professor Dwight Newman and Professor Faisal Bamba. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Dylan um, and uh, uh, Running Mead uh, Club. Uh, sorry, I don't know the executive, but I saw a gesture to that corner. So it's, it's, a, it's a delight to, uh, to be here. Um, and to be uh, to, to have been invited uh, to share this platform with Dwight, uh, Professor Newman, who's somebody I've uh, admired more from afar than uh, known from up close. So you're not witnessing a sort of intimate exchange uh, by peers who have a long history of argumentation or discussion or connection or of anything really. Uh, we've we've met a couple of times in person. We've um, uh, I, I contributed a piece to an edition, uh, a book uh, that, that, that Dwight and colleagues uh, edited. Um, we've exchanged ideas on issues of, of common interest over the years, but uh, we've actually never had a chance for a sustained uh, discussion on, on topics of mutual interest. And uh, it's a credit to uh, Chris uh, Kinsinger, who's obviously the, um, the raging uh, force behind uh, run, running meet at a national level. And I do believe that student clubs benefit greatly from having um, sort of real world organizations to, uh, to facilitate uh, their activities because so much is lost uh, in the turnover of student leadership. And so you know, I think what Chris is doing is really great. Uh, and it's invigorated um, my life because I've getting these invitations to speak about constitutional law with people that I love talking with and with, with an audience. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited. So in terms of how we're going to do it, um, we want it to be as much of a conversation as possible. We want to be able to draw you all uh, into that conversation. At the same time, there is some structure. So I'm going to say a little bit of um, a spiel to set the stage. And that's really the extent of, you know, my my narrative uh, voice contribution here. And then uh, I'm going to pivot to putting some questions to Dwight and inviting him to share uh, some of what he's been thinking about. And then we're going to move to talk about specific cases. And so when we talk about specific cases, I imagine there may be uh, people might want to jump in with thoughts. And I'm happy to kind of pay attention to signals of, of, of itchy feet, uh, those, those that want to jump into the conversation before a structured Q&A. But we'll be sure to leave time uh, near the end to just open it up, open up the floor. Okay. Um, well, hopefully I, I don't drive anybody else away. Um, so, <laughs> social and political fragmentation appear to be defining features of Canadian society today. The tension between traditional brokerage politics, where you have big tent political parties doing deals internally to bring people together, is coming under uh, a lot of pressure from the contemporary turn away from traditional uh, political parties altogether and the rise of populism, activism, nihilism, social discord 
and the wholesale distrust of established institutions, um, and perhaps the rise of new uh, sites of organization and of power uh, for the future. Um, I want to quote a October 2022 article in Policy Options by a couple of political scientists. Quote, a modern democratic paradox has emerged in Canada. Complexity and intractability of contemporary problems have contributed to a legitimacy crisis, and yet we continue to see apathy toward government and a deficit of participation. By relying solely on traditional forms of political expression, we only further impede the prospects for change. The spirit of democracy should be extended to empower people to use their voice directly and contribute the novel viewpoints that will be essential in resolving future impasses. So this is the social and political landscape. On the legal side, we have a Supreme Court of Canada that is more diverse and more divided than ever. For years, the court was a bastion of doctrinal stability, known for its high number of unanimous judgments, especially as if you compare at the time to the way the United States Supreme Court uh, adjudicates. Um, we even had this, this phenomenon of decisions by the court. Uh, I, I took a bit of time to look back on the history of that practice because I think it does reflect a unique uh, Canadian constitutional approach. So around 1979, then Chief Justice Bora Laskin began making use of this American practice of issuing decisions under this name, the court, not, not any specific um, uh, named uh, author. Unlike in SCOTUS, which uses decisions by the court primarily for, for uncontroversial cases, Peter McCormick has observed that in Canada, it's used almost always for controversial decisions, that is, decisions that will have um, a high impact. And the, mu the muting of disagreement in controversial cases and quiet reconciliation of differences on hot-button topics is, I think, a distinct feature of Canadian politics and jurisprudence. But all of this has changed. We merely need to look to the Supreme Court of Canada judgments and the use of the court to see this change. From 79 to 2018, a period of four decades, you have these <clears throat> the court decisions sprinkled gener generously throughout and consistently used. There's, there's very few gaps, um, pretty evenly used. After uh, 2000, you see a dramatic increase, and then suddenly in 2018, it just stops. We haven't had a decision issued by the court in five years. And what has happened in that time is we've seen the composition of the court realigned. We only have one retirement expected in the next decade. And so the question I'm asking is, is the court going to be a thing of the past when we look at the, what, what appears to be the, the, the neat division into camps among the current judges of the Supreme Court? Um, and I certainly do suspect that we'll see less and less of this. And I think that's a sign of the times. And so with that, I want to... Um, turn to uh, Dwight Newman and invite him to engage with me on this topic of fragmentation, division, um, and discord, and specifically focus our conversation on the Supreme Court of Canada uh, and, and look for signs of um, the uh, trends that we see in the broader social and political uh, discourse uh, playing out in jurisprudential trends. And so with that, my first question to you, Dwight, is... What's your assessment of the state of constitutional law and constitutional studies in Canada? What are the judicial and scholarly cleavages when it comes to the Canadian Constitution today? Okay. Well, uh, thank you for having me here, and I'm really glad to have the chance to have this, uh, this dialogue with you. As, uh, 
as as you've said, uh, we haven't uh, had that many chances to talk over the years now and then we've we've emailed or something. Um, but to get a chance to sit down like this, it's a, a real privilege. And uh, so thanks to, to Runnymede and also to the, the co-sponsor of the event, the, the Institute for Liberal Studies. Um, and uh, I guess, uh, I mean, the, the thing I'll say first is, uh, I, I don't know if we should have you writing uh, Canada's tourism brochures, because uh, this description of the state of division and, uh, and discord um, uh, is a dire one, but uh, it has some, uh, some real truth to it. Um, and uh, so I guess, uh, uh, but there is an element that there have always been some cleavages, and despite, I think this is really fascinating what you've pointed out about um, the use of the court as the author. Um, but there certainly were divided decisions in the, the 1980s, 1990s, all the way through when the, the term the court was being used. Um, it would be really interesting to carry out an empirical comparison to, between the, the post-charter era and the pre-charter era in terms of the degree of division. And people like Peter McCormick may well have done that. Um, I may not have looked at the, the exact specific works, but a lot of the divided cases these days are, of course, around constitutional issues. There are cases where the, the court still achieves unanimity, or uh, uh, so does the US court, too. Um, but there are a lot of divided cases, both on the charter and on federalism issues, uh, and on other issues, too. But I, I guess in terms of the, the state of, uh, of that division, I, I don't want to say that it's simplistic, um, because uh, there, there are some who try to describe a simple conservative-liberal divide, as it were, on the court. I don't think it tracks as simply as that. Um, we've got, uh, in recent years, uh, an example of uh, uh, judges that you would think are very separated in terms of some issues actually writing together on surprising things, like Justice Brown and Justice Martin, I think, wrote together on critical race theory, in essence, um, uh, or critical race theory topics in the context of... Uh, uh, of uh, jury selection, uh, th this kind of thing. Um, there, there are complexities to the judges and nobody up at that court is a caricature. Um, they're all sophisticated uh, justices, but there are some divisions and some divisions over matters of uh, interpretation that I think are, are playing out and that we're seeing, um, uh, whether there or in the courts more generally and in the scholarship. And I, I would point to three cleavages that jump out to me. Um, and some of those aren't, aren't new either. Um, uh, there's one that we'll spend more time on, but I'll say, I actually think, first of all, there's a linguistic cleavage. And so a division between English and French language scholarship, English and French language case law. And this often goes unremarked upon, but I think it's worth mentioning uh, and there are areas of constitutional law that are developing differently in French in Quebec than they're developing in English outside Quebec. And that just goes unremarked. We've got different versions of the Constitution, quite frankly, in English and in French. Um, there's no official French language translation 
of the Constitution Act 1867, even though there's meant to be. And now we have separate Ottawa and Quebec versions of that French language version. We won't spend time on that today, I don't think, but I just want to highlight that. I think there's regional divisions that one can see, um, and they track a little bit with what we might also call some uh, ethical divisions. Ethical not in the sense of moral, but in the sense of... Uh, 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 the ethos of the country, as it were, the character of the country, and whether that is described in terms of more classical principles of federalism or whether that's described more in terms of the so-called cooperative federalism of recent years um, and the idea of the court rendering decisions that facilitate dialogue um, and sort of achieving what it thinks of as results rather than simply enforcing the rules of classical federalism. Um, and so I, I think you can get that kind of cleavage. And for example, uh, some of the, uh, the Western judges have adhered more to that classical conception of federalism, or certainly in the scholarship, you get that kind of division to an extent. Um, but there's this, this third cleavage that I think we're probably um, thinking about the most. Um, and that's the interpretive cleavage and the idea of whether in constitutional law more generally, not just in the federalism context, but in charter context as well, whether the approach is going to be more, um, I, I don't want to slant the debate, but I'll call it results oriented, um, oriented towards uh, as those judges that, that go this way, oriented towards just seeking justice without as much um, uh, necessary adherence to um, particular rules. Um, where, where does the arc of justice point? Um, uh, what, what's the court going to give constitutional benediction to today? Um, this kind of language that we've sometimes seen, as opposed to interpretive approaches that are looking um, to legal determinations that are strongly disciplined by the text, by tradition, um, by, uh, by sometimes by history, um, uh, these different elements um, that, uh, that may end up um, more strictly limiting what the court does. And those that adhere to that view would say that they're, um, they're following uh, the rule of law in a sense. Um, in applying rules that exist within something that's, that's not just the determination of the court. And I don't want to caricature either side in that. Um, as I say, uh, the results are inside. Maybe I sound like I'm describing that in a slightly slanted way, but I do think in a way that's the division um, between judges uh, at the court or scholars who are trying to say, well, where should things go and how can the law get there, as opposed to those who are saying, what does the law say given these rules on how we approach the law, and then that's the determination, and then other actors work with that to get to some kind of uh, um, other approach if, if where, uh, if where uh, the law ends up isn't where we're looking to go as a society in a sense. So. Is, is this a judicial activism versus judicial formalism kind of distinction? Um, I am cautious about those terms because it, it can be challenging to 
define judicial activism in a, uh, a neutral way, uh, but you could describe it somewhat in that way. Um, uh, the results-oriented approach, you could call a judicial activist type of approach, and uh, an approach disciplined in some way, you could call a judicial formalist approach, although formalist is almost too narrow um, and isn't necessarily uh, the term that I would use to, to describe all of the different um, ways that, uh, that might be used. Um, so, yeah. You're describing an outcomes-based approach versus a, a structure-based approach. Yeah. Um, and so how do those track, how do those cleavages track to the political uh, tensions to, 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 to whatever extent you could say there is a, uh, a, a kind of liberal constitutionalism and a conservative constitutionalism? Um, no doubt the first cleavage you described, the linguistic, is historical um, and has always existed and is pretty unique to, the, to Canadian history. But in terms of the different conceptions of federalism and this tension between activism and formalism or whatever you want to call it, those, I wonder to what extent you think those are influenced by global politics, by American politics, by perceived left-right uh, positioning, um, however credible you think that is. Um, do, do, do you have any kind of response on that level? Sure. I mean, I'd say uh, certain types of global politics feed into to all of this in a way. And um, if we're, I wouldn't want to say that that's new either, because the sort of the global judicial politics has had an influence on Canada's charter, uh, well, global politics and global judicial politics has had an influence on Canada's charter from the outset. The very fact we have a charter of rights is a reflection of a phase of global politics around the development of written bills of rights in a large number of states around the world since the Second World War um, uh, and the diffusion of the, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights into the form of written bills of rights at the domestic level. And uh, Pierre Trudeau in, uh, um, uh, in his work on the Charter in many ways was, uh, was influenced by these kinds of international instruments. So there's a global influence on the Charter. Um, the proportionality analysis under the Oakes test was shaped profoundly by global, uh, global judicial politics of a sort. And there's a global debate on uh, proportionality analysis. Um, so that's, that's one element to the context. So uh, I don't want to say um, that there's a sudden a cleavage that's emerged in response to global politics, or I'm resisting that a little bit. Um, uh, and I'm resisting saying, well, it's just an American influence on one side, um, because uh, there have been American influences on all sides, and it would be surprising if there weren't, given that we're right next to this very large country uh, that has a lot of uh, smart people in it uh, that argue a lot of different things. And a lot of uh, Canadian legal scholars have trained either in the US or in the UK. Um, and so it's no surprise that there are influences from them. And the US, in having a written Bill of Rights um, and a long tradition on that, has obviously influenced Canadian law in that regard. Um, but there, there are elements of sort of more specific influences we could maybe identify um, in recent years in, in the US. Um, 
the emergence of discussion about originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation in the last few decades, and not just the emergence of discussion about it, but the move towards that as the almost, the almost entrenched method of constitutional interpretation in the US today in some ways. Um, well, that, that has an influence on Canada because people looking at scholarship on constitutional interpretation end up looking at that and thinking about the ideas expressed in it. And um, it's not that far back that we had a, a Supreme Court of Canada case where there was a very sharp debate over originalism um, and whether this, this could be part of Canadian law. It's actually a sort of obscure case, but one of my favorite cases, the consolidated fast freight case, um, which has a debate between Justice Rothstein and Justice Binney in these two opinions that clash over constitutional interpretation to some degree. Um, and Justice Binney tends to, to cast originalism as something that belongs in the United States. Um, and Justice Rothstein gives a lot of argument for why the methods that Justice Binney is calling originalist actually do belong in, in Canada and have been present in Canadian law before. And we've had significant writing um, by, uh, by people like Leonid Sirota and Ben Oliphant who pointed out the presence of originalist thinking um, that's in many more Supreme Court of Canada cases than one might think. But there's a live debate on this today in a way that there maybe wasn't a few years back, where there was an assumption, well, this is just, um, just something unique to the American context when actually um, it has a role in the Canadian context as well that's, that's gone unacknowledged. Um, but that also normatively has value. And I'll give an example, um, because theories of originalism in the US, there's been a rich debate on, and it doesn't mean what people sometimes assume that it means. Um, there are a lot of people today who still associate with an original form of originalism focused on original intent in the Constitution. And uh, the focus today in US discussions on it is very much around original public meaning of a text. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it. There, there are other things, other discussions that go on around, around original methods and engaging with that text and so on. But, uh, but I'll give a tangible example where actually in Canada, we're all originalists in part. If you look at section 9213 of the Constitution Act 1867, which is the provincial power over property and civil rights, nobody takes that to mean that the provinces have power over all human rights issues, um, which is what the term civil rights means to most people today. Uh, but in 1867, the specific legal meaning of that as put into the constitution related to private law rights. Um, and uh, to understand the text from 1867, it's actually essential to consider what did the word mean to lawyers using it at the time in 1867, um, as opposed to what would you mean if you just took it to mean whatever you want it to today or whatever it means in uh, contemporary uh, uh, discourse today. And uh, so I'd say um, the presence of that debate around originalism in the United States helps us both to highlight ideas around interpretation that have always been present in Canada, 
Um, but it also helps to sharpen normative arguments around some points that may not have, uh, have been as, as present. And I, I don't say that by way of advocating specifically for originalism per se, um, but just saying that, uh, that that has helped to shape the, the Canadian debates, if, that, uh, um, if that, uh, that speaks somewhat to your question. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. I mean, viewed that way, I mean, originalism light, or as, as you describe it, is, is just another mode of contextual interpretation, which contextual interpretation is usually associated with sort of left uh, approaches to constitutional interpretation. So, I mean, is, is part of what you're doing um, is um, blowing up this idea that there are sort of ideological um, approaches to interpretation that really What's, what's happening is there's methods of interpretation and these methods get used maybe for different purposes or to serve different interpretive ends? Um, so I, I, I'm both trying to blow that up, but I would acknowledge it at the same time. Okay. Um, uh, I don't want to see us overstate an ideological division um, or, and to say that there are um, simple, straightforward, conservative, liberal divides at the Supreme Court of Canada. At the same time, I do think um, there is something one might call a legal conservatism that's different than a legal liberalism or a, a left legal liberalism that has had a lot of power in Canada. Um, and those that one might group into that legal conservatism category um, would adhere more to the rule of law and the principles associated with the, the rule of law. Um, uh, and would have some distinctive uh, foci, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to over like create a rigid divide uh, where I think there's uh, there's uh, um, there's some real common ground and uh, some possibilities to find common ground more than someone might assume if we started off with the categories in a sense. So political conservative Canadian political conservatism of say the 1950s, George Grant. Um, viewed American influence with existent, uh, existential level skepticism. Um, yet what, you know, these ideas of changing notions of federalism um, and uh, um, this concern around judicial activism, these are very much American concerns. So I'm wondering to what extent the agenda um, of Canadian conservatism, whether political or legal or both, uh, has shifted considerably. I mean, maybe another way of asking the question is, what would George Grant think uh, of Canadian legal conservatism today? Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to speak to what George Grant would think so much, but I, I will say certainly there's been a shift in what political conservatism looks like in Canada today. I do think there remains a, a distinctive Canadian tradition relative to an American conservatism. Um, but uh, I do think there have been some meaningful realignments within what are called conservative, uh, conservative movements and liberal or left movements. Um, and uh, like conservatism today uh, has a very large outreach to, uh, to working class and uh, labor populations in a way that it may not have been perceived as having that outreach at one point in time. Um, uh, sort of who, who is uh, lined up with, uh, with uh, different political movements is looking quite different today 
uh, than it may have looked in the 1950s. Um, that's, that's no doubt true. Um, but at the same time, uh, the tracking with um, legal conservatism, um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but uh, I, I do think there's some alignment there, and uh, I don't want to say there's not. Um, but, uh, I, I, yeah, I'll leave it at that maybe for the moment. So. Okay. All right. Well, let, let's, let's take that uh, and, and turn to, to analyze some cases in which we okay. saw a divided court or we see a divided society. Uh, for the benefit of the audience, we've, we've come prepared to talk about, we've decided which cases we want to talk about. The TWU uh, decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in 2018, um, the Ward uh, decision of the Supreme Court of Canada of 2021, and the ongoing uh, litigation uh, out of Quebec in the case of Huck. Uh, l let me, um, let's, let's take each case in turn and um, okay. let me just say a, a, a brief intro for the benefit of, our, of, of those with us here today. So in TWU, the Supreme Court of Canada considered the question, are law societies permitted to breach freedom of religion in order to advance their regulatory mandate? And if so, on what justification? And the, the court, a majority of the court held that law societies do have the power to regulate law schools and that it's not unreasonable for law societies to interpret their public interest mandate to include promoting equality for LGBTQ prospective students, even if it means violating religious freedom in deciding to refuse to recognize TWU grads. In other words, if religious institutions wish to enjoy certain benefits of inclusion in the commons, it's reasonable for the state or for the majoritarian interests to demand that, that institution guarantee certain secular norm, baseline norms are respected. What's interesting to me is that many constitutional law scholars and observers ab applauded this decision, um, as a, uh, which, which at, at its core was a justification of a breach of the charter. Uh, and that they applauded it on the basis that it was good for the charter, that it was good for uh, equality, um, it was good for minority rights. Um, yet the dissenters point out uh, the paradox of the majority's reasoning, and let me just quote from them. They say, quote, even, even were the public interest to be understood broadly, as the law society says, accreditation of TWU's law school would not be inconsistent with the law society's statutory mandate. In a liberal and pluralist society, the public interest is served and not undermined by the accommodation of difference. Bizarre uh, coming in a dissent from those uh, two um, judges talking about the accommodation of difference uh, and, and pluralism. Um, or is it bizarre? Um, how, what, do you, what, do you, what do you make of this, of this divide and of the reaction in the legal uh, establishment uh, to this decision and to this, to this reasoning? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually find the, the dissent bizarre in any way. I think... Uh, um, the dissenting justices um, represent a, a view on uh, on religious freedom and pluralism as as going together, um, but in terms of the the decision more generally, um, there are all kinds of complexities and ironies about it. And I will say it it was a very tough case um, because it's not straightforwardly um, a uh, an infringement on a right for the sake of nothing. It's uh, an infringement on a religious freedom right in the context of another right, an equality right being at stake. And I think that's what everyone discussing the case, if they got fully into it, uh, um, uh, recognized. Um, uh, but th there were very sharp sides drawn about the case at the same time. 
Um, and uh, those that, uh, that were very happy with the result, which is a lot of the Canadian uh, Legal Academy, um, uh, I guess uh, I've heard far fewer people defend the reasoning than the result. And there are some real gaps in what the majority ended up doing um, uh, that, uh, that I think made it a very anticlimactic decision in some ways relative to the discussion that led up to it. Um, insofar as uh, there, there was discussion leading up to the case around uh, freedoms other than freedom of religion that were at stake, freedom of association um, or equality rights for religious minorities. Um, those are bo both put before the court, maybe not as much as the freedom of religion argument, but the court ends up simply uh, dismissing those and saying they're not even going to deal with them on the basis that they arise, as the court puts it, um, at paragraph 77 of the judgment from the same factual matrix as the freedom of religion claim. And I mean, that's true. They arise from the same factual matrix in some respects, um, but they don't involve the same legal argument or the same legal tests. Um, uh, they, or the same way, analysis. And, in a way uh, they do, don't they? Like, does, hasn't the court treated freedom of religion and, and religious equality as essentially the same thing? Uh, it has done a lot of that, but it shouldn't be doing that because uh, uh, Section 15 has a, a different, uh, different analysis under it. And there is a, um, a non-burdening of religion uh, that's, uh, that's part of Section 2A. And so then that ends up... Uh, sort of looking a little bit like an equality argument that's part of 2A itself. Um, but a, a, religious, uh, a religious equality argument under six, Section 15 involves different considerations yet again, apart from those in, in 2A, and the Section 15 test is very different. So, um, but TWU uh, didn't make those arguments, did they? Not so much. And they, I they, mean, they, they, they seated, did a little bit. But they seeded yeah. the equality ground <laughs> yeah. to, uh, the, to, to sexual orientation as though religion were not even in Section 15. Yeah, I think that uh, in re and it's easier to comment on lawyers' arguments in retrospect um, I, uh, I was then, asking uh, this then, at the then, time, then, actually. Well, that's Why? Good. Yeah. I so, never got a good answer to that. Why didn't they plead religion? I, uh, I, and I don't know that. Uh, I, I think they should have. And uh, I may be saying that more in retrospect. Um, but there have been others who've argued um, uh, that, uh, that in cases like that, religious equality should be pled. Um, uh, uh, Chris Kinsinger's written on this, uh, of course, um, in terms of... Uh, 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 a leading international scholar who's written on this, uh, Chris McCrudden, um, uh, a scholar who used to be at Oxford but uh, now is back in Ireland, um, uh, I guess uh, has written on uh, the idea of uh, religious equality arguments being led in these kinds of uh, cases um, or analogous kinds of cases. And uh, I think that would bring something different and to the extent that it wasn't argued so much before the court, well, they do get to dismiss it. But freedom of association similarly would bring to the fore different considerations. I think it was at least implicitly there. But if you look at the affidavit material that's quoted in the majority, it's not a rich description of what's at stake. And I mean, that would be the other thing I'd say is pretty anticlimactic about the majority relative to the, the years of discussion in the legal academy leading up to this. Um, their description of what's at stake in terms of, well, there, there are some little students that, that 
want to study with people the same as them or uh, uh, so on isn't a rich description of religious community um, and what's at stake in, uh, in, a, in the context of uh, a religious community dimension of freedom of religion. Um, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll, to be fair, I'll say I don't think the court necessarily uh, describes very richly the, uh, the argument um, on behalf of equality rights for LGBTQ students either. I mean, there's just something about the majority argument that's really flat and thin at the end of this very long discussion in the Canadian Legal Academy. Um, that would be some of my reaction on TWU. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, and there was so much hope uh, with respect to the rights of religious communities coming out of Loyola. Um, where, where do we stand with that? Uh, so where does the where does the, the, the hope of Loyola or the or the, the potential of Loyola rest now in light of TWU? Yeah, um, I, I guess uh, the Loyola case was divided, um, and uh, there are some different things that can be drawn from it. And um, the comments of the court on uh, association questions lend themselves to the idea that there might be more development on uh, on to. Uh, on 2D at some stage. Um, uh, there's of course been a more recent case, the, uh, the Aga case that uh, um, pertains to religious communities, um, the, the Wall case for that matter. Um, and so there's, there's ongoing case law, but I think there's a lot of um, room for more, more rich discussion on religious community than we've seen so far. And that's something we'll see over time. Um, perhaps, but uh, in terms of the, the division in TWU, it became this over, overly simplistic uh, discussion, perhaps, um, relative to a lot of discussion that had taken place before. Um, and uh, a lot of the legal academy was very happy with the result. But as I say, I've not heard a lot of people um, that cheerful about the reasoning on either side. Um, uh, and uh, just there's something lacking in the, the analysis in some ways. Okay. All right. Well, let's, um, let's, let's pivot then to, uh, to Huck, uh, because um, what the court did in TWU may um, give us something to predict what, what the court uh, or courts may do down the line in, in Huck, just to, to, to bring everybody up to speed on where we're at. So in June 2019, the Quebec legislature adopts Bill 21, banning outward religious symbols on certain public sector workers who exercise authority. This includes government lawyers, teachers, um, police officers, and so on. It, it, it's widely recognized to have a disparate impact on Muslim women who wear the hijab, as well as other religious minorities. A constitutional challenge is launched the day after the, the legislation, uh, the bill is, is tabled um, by the CCLA, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and the National Council of Canadian Muslims, NCCM, uh, with, a, with a whole host of um, other organizations in, in tow ready to intervene and so on. So the claimants uh, seek an immediate order of suspension um, uh, while the challenge goes to trial, they spend some time litigating that. They lose. Uh, it goes to the Quebec Court of Appeal. Um, in April 20, uh, 20, sorry, April 20, sorry, in, in 2020, the case goes to trial. And in April 2021, a Quebec Superior Court judge finds that the law will have a harmful impact, but is uh, upheld nonetheless by virtue of Section 33 of the Charter, the Notwithstanding Clause. 
NCCM and the CCLA appealed to the Quebec Court of Appeal. They filed their briefs in December of 21, and the hearing began in November of 22, so just a couple of months ago. Um, and that's where, where things are at. This case will, um, will proceed, uh, and will likely proceed all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. So here, in contrast to TWU, we've got a Superior Court decision which doesn't justify the incursion on freedom of religion under the Charter, as the Court does in TWU. Rather, it shields it from invalidation by, by, by almost automatic invalidation. Like, there's no question this is discriminatory legislation that would be invalidated by virtue, uh, but for the, the invocation of the constitutional override. There are creative efforts being deployed in the arguments by interveners and the parties uh, to try to get around the override. LEAF, for example, a feminist legal organization, urged the court to apply Section 28, the sex equality provision, to, to get around it. Uh, what, do you, what do you predict for Huck? Um, I mean, predictions are always dangerous. <laughs> um, but um, my prediction would be uh, uh, if the Supreme Court of Canada does something with this, um, I guess that would indicate that they're inclined to say something about Section 33 of the Charter. Um, uh, on Section you 33... Think so, you think, uh, sorry, you think, that, you think that a leave decision would essentially be a leave decision on, on, section, on whether to pronounce on Section 33? I think if they're not going to say anything about Section 33, there's little point to granting leave. Um, yeah. But I'd also be surprised if they want to say something dramatically new about Section 33. Um, the little bit of dictum we got in uh, the City of Toronto case um, suggests uh, no real shift on Section 33 um, from past case law. Um, and I think the constitutional text on Section 33 is, uh, is very clear. Uh, now, I mean, yeah, they could grant leave in relation to some of the... Uh, the possible routes around Section 33, this argument about Section 28, uh, the arguments about federalism or, uh, or uh, uh, values predating the Charter or something along other lines. Um, uh, to my mind, um, uh, uh, although there's interesting historical work on Section 28, um, by, uh, uh, especially by uh, scholar Kerry uh, Frock, uh, who's investigated the history of Section 28 and why it was put in there. Um, uh, the text of Section 28 is very limited in what it says. And um, so unless um, uh, suddenly those that don't adhere to original intent are going to go deeply into uh, the history of Section 28 and uh, uh, discover uh, something there, um, I mean, the text of Section 28 as an interpretive section um, and as a section that just says that the rights that are in the Charter are guaranteed equally to male and female persons, um, it doesn't change whether Section 33 does something, in my view. And so I'd be surprised if the Supreme Court of Canada suddenly gave um, a large scope to Section 28, say. Um, but, I mean, there can be surprises. That's why I say predictions are always uh, dangerous. Uh, but my sense would be uh, Section 33 resolves the matter, even though, as, as you've rightly pointed out, um, uh, those of us looking at this, uh, this bill would say, well, without Section 33, there's some pretty clear violations going on. Yeah, I mean, the, the Section 28 argument is actually really kind of ironic um, because the way it was explained to me once upon a time, uh, the, they'll call it the oral history from a... 
a feminist uh, from the trenches who was around back then, was that Section 28 was insisted upon as a defense against Section 27, which is the, um, the, rec the constitutional recognition of Canada's multicultural heritage, because, mm -hmm. of course, 40 years ago, um, feminists were not defending Muslim women who wore hijab and people like that. They were scared of those, of, of those values and of those cultures. Uh, um, but um, there's been a major shift amongst uh, Canadian legal feminists to embrace the plight uh, of women who previously were viewed as uh, lacking uh, sufficient agency to make decisions uh, to live their lives the way they live. Uh, they're now being uh, defended uh, in, in this way. And so, you know, Leaf's position in Haq is a very interesting one from a historical uh, perspective in terms of the history of that organization. Um, but I guess I want to ask you two very specific questions. Um, how pressing is the promotion of secularism as a legal object, as a legal objective, um, in the eyes of the Supreme Court of Canada? This the current uh, composition of the Supreme Court of Canada, if that's something you can speculate on. Um, and maybe in the same vein, would the current court re likely recognize? unwritten constitutional principles as capable of imposing substantive obligations or limits on legislatures? Um, so on the, the second, uh, <laughs> how, how do we go about answering that? Um, I mean, one of the, the problems of where we're at is sometimes we seem to end up in a, a counting of noses or something um, because uh, uh, we're into matters where the court has been divided and then some of the members change, and do we make guesses based on how we think um, the slightly different majority might have shifted towards? I, I don't know. So um, on the case law, though, I'd say we've got a clear affirmation that uh, in the City of Toronto case that unwritten principles aren't going to override the, the rest of the Constitution um, and aren't something to which there, there's going to be a, a, a real shift. In terms of is the promotion of secularism per se uh, an objective that would be recognized? I, I'd say I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that's what even the majority was recognizing in TWU. I mean, they, they were recognizing an equality rights issue um, uh, that r raised real complexities for the case. Uh, but the promotion of secularism per se runs up so directly against uh, 2A in some respects uh, that I don't know that you can say that the promotion of secularism is a government objective, even while at the same time an aspect of 2A um, ends up being uh, this, this, uh, this idea in Saguenay and, uh, and other cases of, of there being a, a sort of uh, uh, non-religious uh, public space. Um, but uh, the, the promotion of secularism per se in a larger way um, I, I don't think they would treat as a, an objective that, that gives us section one justification. That said, I'll, I'll just acknowledge on this whole discussion on hack, um, it ties into that first cleavage I mentioned. I, I don't want to dwell on the point um, because I, I'm not saying I understand well um, the Francophone discussion on laïcité, but there's a very different discourse around um, uh, the state's interaction with religion um, 
and uh, the discussion that goes on in Europe is very different than that in Anglophone Canada, um, and you see that reflected in some of the, uh, the attitude in uh, Quebec itself, and the discussion around laïcité in, uh, in Quebec. Um, and so I don't know if there would be some uh, that, uh, that do, uh, do treat that as uh, an objective of sorts, um, but uh, my initial reaction is to say, no, I, I don't see that being treated as a, a pressing objective. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's actually a really interesting point because it also ties into the question of American influence because if you look at Quebec's approach to religious discrimination, it's perfectly consistent with the European approach, with the European Court of Human Rights approach and interpretation of anti-discrimination doctrine in Europe. Um, but in English Canada, we're much more aligned with the hardcore American individual rights approach uh, to, to religious accommodation. Probably most Canadians don't wouldn't view it, it as that kind of... European versus American influence, but right. but that is kind of what we have when it comes. There's to an element of that, although I'd say Canada's traditionally been aligned with the the free exercise part of the American approach, yeah. um, less aligned with the the non-establishment part yes. of the American approach. Although with some shifts towards that in cases like Saguenay, um, uh, but I, I guess in Canada, I mean, in the Constitution, there remain guarantees of denominational school rights in some provinces where those haven't been removed. Um, and uh, the preamble uh, has a reference to the, the supremacy of God. Um, uh, these elements are a little bit different than part of the American context, but I agree with you. There is a, a, an aspect where we're aligned with part of the American approach where Quebec may be more aligned to the... Uh, European approach, and some of it relates to different histories, I guess, too. I mean, the the Quiet Revolution in Quebec is against the context of uh, uh, a very powerful uh, state church up to that point in time, and that wasn't present in, in English Canada in the same way, and so uh, the reaction against that in Quebec is uh, something that plays out in a historically different way than, than English Canada uh, Right. Um, Though Saguenay is an anomaly in that in that regard, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you when you look at the level of attachment uh, for a society that um, claims to have uh, undergone a revolution, um, but okay, let's let's turn let's turn to Ward because I think a lot of these issues just kind of come home in Ward, where we had an, uh, a very narrowly split bench, five to four, um, and you could say Ward would be a case that. Wouldn't would never see the light of day in the United States? That would that be accurate to say? Like the the, the so. hand wringing yeah. in Ward would just not exist in the U.S. Yeah. When it comes to this tension between discrimination and freedom of speech. Yeah, I mean the the U.S. has a, a much stronger protection of freedom of speech than Canada in general terms. Um, um, even on things that uh, in Canada would be illegal hate speech, there's protection in the in the U.S. in a way that there isn't here. So, yeah. Yeah. Um. And, and while Ward does appear to bring this left versus right, equality versus freedom uh, dynamic to bear, um, you could imagine some slight factual variation that would make this case maybe not fit that kind of, um, that, that kind of positioning so easily. What if, what if, um, uh, what if the alleged victim or, or the, 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 complain, the complainant was not a young disabled person, but a young Christian or religious uh, person? Um, do, you think, do you think legal conservatives would be as 
sort of skeptical of the discrimination interest at play if the facts were were different? Um, I, I I think this is a really interesting question as to how this would play out differently, and to the extent that the, that there's legal conservatives involved in this. Um, uh, the, the judges who sided on the expression side in Word and said a comedian needs to be able to, to engage in expression that's distasteful and even pretty horrible um, in the things he said about the, um, uh, the disabled boy in the case. Um, uh, but that that's, that's part of people being able to have comedy um, even if we don't like that kind of comedy. Um, I think they would actually say the same thing in the, the case that you're describing. Um, uh, I don't think any of those that sided in the majority in the case uh, did so because of a dislike for people with disabilities. Um, I think that uh, uh, so-called legal conservatives often stand up for people with disabilities. And uh, um, I, I guess... Uh, uh, for one thing, uh, not wanting them to be subjected to, to medically assisted suicide. Um, but uh, I, I guess uh, I, I, I shouldn't say it that way. But uh, we should go there. Uh, and that's an interesting but, point. Uh, yeah, but um, I'm being a little uh, uh, provocative in, in putting it that way. But um, I guess I'll just say I, I think that though that the decision wasn't because of not taking seriously the interests of a disabled child so much as just seeing it as there's too much concern if you start trying to limit expression in that situation. And so the, the majority judgment crafts a careful test where they say expression can be limited um, where uh, there's a sufficiently specific harm at issue um, or where there's something that really questions somebody's humanity or ability to participate in a democratic society. Yeah, those are reasons to limit expression, but you're in dangerous territory when you go beyond that. And I think um, certainly those in the majority would be sympathetic to the person you're describing, as I think they were sympathetic to the, the child with a disability. Um, but they, I think they would reach the same result. Whether the other side would, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I mean, they're, they're, uh, this is where it makes a difference whether your legal reasoning is based on rules of law or based on an orientation towards what you see as just outcomes. And I think that some of those who uh, um, were uh, ready to side... Um, uh, with the disabled child might frankly not be as inclined to side with uh, a, a differently situated um, individual being subjected to that kind of speech um, because if you're thinking more about the outcome um, you end up in a, a different place and I, I mean this is part of where I, I'm not uh, I'm not in that camp that's uh, oriented towards well we're just going to pick the outcome um, I think we do need to have some consistent rules um, and I think many I think those in the majority judgment in that case would probably be of that view as well right. so. I mean the majority says um, it would be different if they just picked a disabled kid but they didn't uh, sorry, the, the if Ward had just picked a, dis a random disabled kid to make fun of, that likely would have been found uh, to be discriminatory. But it's because he picked a famous kid 
who happen to be disabled and used the disability as the source of the of, of for the for, for the jokes. It was the fact of him being famous. Do you, do you do you see that as um like that that seems to me to do the, to do the work uh, for the majority's uh, uh, reasoning. Does that does that do it for you? Um. It, whether that does the work for them, um, I mean, there's a few different things going on because, of course, um, it's another example of a case where, where we're looking at something drawn from a slightly different context. It's a case under the Quebec Charter, which does ultimately um, probably say something about the interpretation of the Canadian Charter, but where there's a different uh, right at stake in terms of the, the dignity right uh, in the Quebec Charter and then equal treatment with respect to that dignity right. Um, I, I guess um, what I'd say is that because of that different legal location, maybe things would line up differently for the random disabled child. Um, but if you just look at the test they end up articulating in terms of um, the specific harm um, or the questioning of the person's humanity or ability to participate at a fundamental level, that might do the work in distinguishing between the two cases as well, um, or uh, might, might settle a lot of cases, uh, I guess I'd say. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media for updates on our summer CPD series, and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.